This is The Guardian. Hello and welcome to The Guardian Football Weekly. Blimey, how utterly ludicrous. The Real Madrid fans were leaving, the match reports had been written, TV studios around the world had finalised their full-time running orders and it wasn't coming. And then Rodrigo. And then Rodrigo again. There is something about injury time. Six minutes, is it enough? Obviously not. Real Madrid were behind from one minute and 32 seconds in the first leg until 90 minutes and 50 seconds in the second leg. And then Benzema's penalty three minutes later and they held on any way they could. Before that, Jack Grealish, take it to the corner. So close to being a hero. How do you analyse it all? Surely Pep didn't overthink it. But what does City have to do to win this competition? Is finding a way a real thing? How depressing is it that Camavinga is only 19 years old? Who was that massive bloke that Real Madrid brought on at the end just to lump it? And has Steve McManaman really watched 100 million football matches? You've asked 100 million questions. There's other stuff. Philippe wants to talk about Infantino. Naden wants to talk about himself. We might have time all on today's Guardian Football Weekly. On the panel today, uh, Nader Manua, welcome. Oh my gosh, I feel attacked already. Good morning. Philippe <laughs> <laughs> Beauclair, hello. Hello, hello. Barry Glendening, hello. Bonjour. And Sid Lowe in Madrid, hello. Morning, Max. So obviously there was a bun fight for those funny questions that aren't really questions to ask at the top of the pod. Jamie says, Queen's Park nil, Dunfermline nil. Any thoughts? Uh, Jesse is, uh, Jesse, in knocking out PSG, Chelsea and Man City, has this season been the greatest PR triumph for Real Madrid? Owen says, I started brushing my teeth when City were 1-0 up. By the time I'd finished, they were 2-1 down and I don't even do the full big toothpaste mandated two minutes. And uh, the comedian Mark Watson writes, Max, I don't know if you're watching the current match. I know it's early over there, but it, it is very lively fair, actually. It's right. It, it was lively fair. Sid, you were there. I mean, there were so many moments. Uh, the most extraordinary, <laughs> I think, is the Rodrigo header, right? Um, I don't know, is it? A, apart is the, it's the most, is is the it? most extraordinary, the clearance off the goal line. Hmm. And, and particularly there's someone put a photograph of this out last night and I, I must confess I hadn't quite appreciated how absurd it was obviously you see that it's a very very difficult clearance off the goal line but the absurdity of it is the photo is taken just as the ball's just finished hitting Camavinga and it looks like Foden's standing less than a meter out and go well there you go then that's the goal isn't it uh, it was I mean, it was just ludicrous what what was the uh, you know apart from the I've got I've got to change my match report you know that, that Wilson would talk about for two hours, what was that moment when Rodrigo scored that header? What was that moment like? I, I, well, my reactions at least I just sat there and started laughing. I mean, it was gen- it genuine genuinely I was laughing. There were the 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 press area was very very busy and we were particularly packed in because some of the guys the technicians obviously the guys who do you know the phone lines for TV companies and stuff like that were sitting directly behind me and they were Madrid fans. And they went absolutely mental. And I think there was a slight moment when they sort of looked at us as if to say, oh, sorry, you're trying to work. And I just kind of looked at them and this is ridiculous. This, and he would just sort of sit in there laughing at it, thinking this, this couldn't happen. I mean, this time it couldn't happen. And yet <laughs> it, 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 it absolutely was going to. There's no way this wasn't going to happen. There was some, some footage of some people leaving early, right? And, yeah. and I did think to myself... And here comes, you know, hype alert or, or exaggeration alert. Are they the stupidest people on the planet or what? Who, who leaves Real Madrid early in the Champions League? 
Who does it? Yeah, I know, but it, it wasn't coming. Like it, it, it that, wasn't, that... but it doesn't matter. It's Real Madrid and there's two minutes left. At least stay and, you know, clap your team for an amazing Champions League campaign, even if they're not going to win. I mean, we talk about fine margins, Nedim, and, and Craig Foster made the point on, on TV over here, that, that if it's, was it Asensio who flicks that header from Carvajal? Yeah. Right. So yes, it is, if yeah. A, if Asensio doesn't get that tiny flick, then it, it probably doesn't reach Rodrigo. But Rodrigo can't anticipate that flick. So nah, so his no header way. his header is actually going to miss unless it hits Asensio. <laughs> right. That's totally ridiculous. Yeah. yeah. It is. That's exactly right. It is exactly right. Because you think how's that such a good header when somebody's flicked it like a yard away from him, basically. But you know those are the little things that you need, and you know the clearance off the line and all that stuff. And to, to sort of piggyback what Sid's saying, it's, it's Real Madrid, you just don't leave early. Like the, the way they've won the league this year, like the other years, you know, when Ramos was there and they'd score two goals in 10 seconds, this, that and the other. The tie was never over. And I think, um, Sid, did you see the banner that was up, or Wultifo or whatever, that was up in one of the stands? It was like another magical night in Madrid. Yeah, in Madrid, the, the Kings, Kings of, of Europe. Europe. Yeah, Exactly. I was reading that and I thought, oh, I don't like this. This is before the game. It's almost like they were preempted <laughs> it. And then lo and behold, that's the stuff that happens. And, you know, I, I'm I'm conflicted a bit because obviously I've got a city connection, but like there's the city inquest, then there's the Real Madrid praise. I need to make sure there's enough Real Madrid praise, because, but I can still do the city inquest as well because they should have been able to manage that game better. But at the end of the day, you know, for the neutrals, it, it was a great tie, and you know, Real Madrid led when they needed to, which was the key thing. Well, you said mentioned the banner, and and you know, you're saying uh, it's as if they're preempting it. There's a bit of me that that thinks, and I asked Guardiola this yesterday, actually after the after the game in the press conference, and and he deflected it away from City, but did put it onto onto Real Madrid. Whether the fact that this is happening has happened before is what makes it more likely to happen again because it's in people's minds. It becomes kind of self perpetuating, and he said, "Well, not with us because it hadn't happened to us. We hadn't lived this yet. But maybe to Real Madrid, it does. That there's this feeling that." You know, whatever happens, there will somehow be a way. And yet, of course, for all of that, I don't know what you want to call it, belief or faith or mental toughness or whatever, it's still got to actually happen. And the actual happening bit, I don't know if that was faith or if it was just, well, it just happened. And then actually, Barry, like Rodrigo almost scored a hat-trick in normal time. There was almost, there was enough time. In two that minutes, minutes, 58 seconds, Max. Max, I, wor- I was just, just watching it just before we, we started. Two minutes, 58 seconds between with the first goal and what had been the third goal. Unbelievable. Oh, it was ridiculous, Barry. Yeah, um, it was an outstanding save by Edison to, to stop the Rodrigo hat-trick. And I'm, I'm pretty sure it was probably the first save he made, I think. <laughs> I think so, yeah. <laughs> um and for all that, I don't think City did a huge amount wrong. They they find new and interesting ways to, to lose these Champions League. They've now failed to win six under Pep. And if you go through them all, there was the, the Monaco one where they scored five goals in the first leg and went out. Beaten fair and square by Liverpool. Then mugged by Spurs. Leon where... Pep, that was, I think, the first time he overthought things and played three centre, three at the back. Uh, lost the final meekly last year to Chelsea without a, a defensive midfielder. And, and now this, where I don't think they did a whole lot wrong. Jack Grealish, I suppose, should have put away one of those chances. Um, you know, he's their record signing. He, That's what he was brought in to do. But, you know, the goal line clearance... Courtois getting the end of his stud to the, the second yeah, shot. That was just incredible. 
So it's it's harsh to point the finger at, at Grealish. Uh, who was it? Um, Ruben Diaz had a bit of a mare because he lost Rodrigo for both goals and gave away the penalty. But I think any other day we'd probably be sitting here talking about how great Manchester City were, and uh, but we're not. It's a, and and for Pep it must be a huge humiliation to lose like that at the Bernabeu. There's one thing that that it occurred to me that City did wrong. Um, I don't know. I, I, I'm I, I'm not really sure whether whether I'm sort of pushing this too far, but it feels to me that at the risk of sounding like one of kind of one of those very what would you call it sort of oh it's terrible sort of pundits right but it seems to me that you can't allow a team to score 88 seconds after they've already scored like you can't allow the kickoff to happen that quickly your goalkeeper can't then just pump it up the other end now after the goal if and, and again this I, I feel like maybe I'm exaggerating this but but it sort of feels like this post game you sort of think after the goal have someone go down with cramp. Have someone complain about something, even if there's nothing to complain about it. Just stop it for a minute. And just, just don't let it start up again that quickly. And that moment when Edison literally just pumps it up the other end to, to Courtois, which is, of course, the, the opposite of what City are supposed to be about, which is protection through possession and so on. That just struck me as, if you're going to look for a mistake, it, it sort of feels to me like, or that, I know it's still a freak occurrence, but you surely can't allow a freak occurrence to happen that quickly. It's your, it's your kickoff, remember? You're the ones that start with the ball. Real Madrid didn't allow any occurrences to happen in extra time after the penalty, did they? Philippe, I want to bring you in. Um, your thoughts on this whole ridiculous football match? Yeah, r- ridiculous indeed. Because in fact, I think uh, until the first goal, to be honest, I think it was really an underwhelming match of football. It was not particularly good. Neither team was particularly on it. But just to, to bounce on what um, Sid was saying about this ability to concede two goals in, in a matter of minutes, uh, it's actually something which Miguel Delaney um, has pointed out on Twitter. And I thought, I, I read it, I thought, this is crazy. And I'm reading it to you. He says, of Guardiola's 18, um, 11 Champions League eliminations, eight have seen decisive periods that were sudden, sudden collapses, flurries of goals conceded. 2010, Two goals conceded in 13 minutes. 2014, three goals conceded in 18. 2015, three in 17. 2017, two in eight minutes. 2018, three in 19. 2019, two in three. 2020, two in eight. And 2022, three in six. So it's bizarre, isn't it? Because when you think of uh, Manchester City, you think about control, you think about possession. You would think this is the team which is ideally equipped to manage these kinds of very strange happening. And, and the, the opposite happened. And then afterwards, there was a lot of time to get back into the game during the, the extra time. And this is when another side of City w- was shown. And I think that the body language, the facial expressions, Phil Foden in particular, they were so shocked. There was no way they're going, they're going to, go to, to get back in. You know, and it was not just about, to use a word which is quite popular on this podcast, the shithousery of various... Real Madrid players. And by the way, in the kind of sliding doors, Sid, uh, Casemiro could and should have been sent off probably as well. So that's yet another thing. He has an amazing cloak of invisibility, Casemiro, because it's not just yesterday. It happens so often. It's really really genuinely quite impressive. I don't, I I mean, you you sort of look at Casemiro and he has many qualities and you think, is his invisibility his, his, his greatest quality? Yeah. I mean, like he doesn't, he doesn't, he doesn't like try and rip Foden's shirt off if he's on a yellow, right? But 
they're both such blatant yellows. Well, like they're the, both the oranges, aren't they? Start. They're both First dark yellows. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Totally. Uh, Nadem? Yeah, I was going to say, um, so what Miguel's trying to say there, I think from reading between the lines, it almost sounds like it's a criticism of Pep, but firstly, he's not out on the field. Like, I'm going to sound like a proper, like, apologist now, but I'm not, but I don't care. Oh, you've never I think played what the he's, game. One, that, yeah, yeah I, think, I, think, I think what he's trying to allude to there, reading between the lines, is somebody who's played the game. He's talking about momentum. You're talking about these key Champions League games. And when a side gets, scores a goal, they feel they have momentum. And both teams can't have momentum at the same time. So as a consequence, you are more susceptible to conceding and things like this. I think they should have managed the game differently yesterday. But look at the energy in the stadium after that first goal goes in. There's an expectation amongst the players, amongst the fans, that there's going to be another one. And I've seen, I've faced it. Like at that point, when you don't have it, you are more wary about making this pass. And City, for as brilliant as they are, there's still a bunch of human beings on the field. And we expect them to go out and do this and do that. But it takes an awful lot for a team to say, well, just going to put my foot on the ball for the last two minutes away at the Burner Bay when 60,000 people are expecting their team to score and all their players are now on the front foot coming straight at you. Like, that's the nature of football. For as good as any team is, there's still 11 players on the other side who are capable of winning a game, especially in the Champions League. But in the nature of kind of elite football and then analysing the absolute peak of it and someone like Pep, you know, who is, it's all about attention to detail. Yeah. Is it not a valid, a sort of valid... But that's no, I but, can understand your explanation. You know, pretty, but it's what, not I'll say, what I'll say about this, it's like, there are tons of people don't like City, tons of people don't like Pep Guardiola and are like, and that's fair enough, they're entitled to their opinions. But say, for example, the substitutions that City made yesterday, I've got no criticism of them because the people who came off weren't playing well or they were injured. But I'm hearing conversations about why would you take off KDB? Why would you take off Gabriel Jesus? But then they weren't playing well. And then the other side of it, Madrid have won. And if they had lost, how many people would be sort of disregarding the fact, oh, why did they take off Casemiro, Kroos and Modric? That just seems like a ridiculous thing to do. You know, the, the two things that have happened, but we're only, really, well, some people are only looking at one thing and it can be very easy to blame the coach. And, you know, in fairness, he's, he's not perfect, but this is football. This is the nature of it. Try and play when the other team's got all the momentum in your way from home. I guarantee you, it'll make you do things which you're not normally, sort of, you do most of the time. So not to defend them as such, because I think they could have managed it better. But that is literally what he's described. He's described having no momentum against the side that does have it. I, I get what you're, what you're saying, Adam, but I'm, I, I was think I thought that thinking, for example, of the the tie against Atletico, I, you thought when you saw that that the City side had grown a little bit of, why well, why do you call it? I mean, its own shit houseery, so to speak. Yeah, and that they were able to withstand this kind of pressure because that mm -hmm. was also you know. Uh, they already had faced that, and they were able, you know, as they did in, in in against Atletico, they were able to put the foot on the ball or actually pretend they were a little bit injured or something was happening or whatever. Mm -hmm. This time, it didn't happen. And the other thing, and I'm I'm coming back to you for that because you're talking. I can understand your point, but how do you explain then their attitude during extra time? There was plenty of time to get back into the tie, and they disappeared. They genuinely disappeared. Yeah, I, I don't think they played well at all in extra time. And I think that all starts with the fact that they give away such a cheap penalty five minutes into it. That error from Ruben Diaz changed the tone of the game because for the first time, Real Madrid were in control of the tie. And now being in control of the tie whilst playing at home, understanding how to get to all these finals like they have done, understand the manager on the sidelines been to five Champions League finals and so on. Like that game, I'd love to see how long the ball was in play for after Madrid actually scored, scored that goal to take the lead. In the 25 minutes that were available, I'd love to see how much it was. And I think the substitutions that Ancelotti made, like 
Kamavinga isn't better, in my opinion, than Kroos or whoever, but he's more dynamic and that caused City huge problems. Their midfield was charging about. The younger players that were out there, they were causing significant issues. And for City, again, they didn't have momentum. They couldn't really just go and comfortably play out from the back. The game was like fractures. Courtois was kicking diagonal balls to um, Rodrigo on the right-hand side. Zinchenko was winning the headers, but heading out of play. Like, how many times did the ball get headed out of play on that far side? And that's because they're doing the little things to just stop the flow of the game. I think if City would have been involved in a game whereby the flow was there, maybe they could have created something. But instead, it was all like, speaking from a fan perspective, it's like you were hoping something was going to happen because they couldn't structure something due to the nature of, say, the way the game had gone at that point. And like I said at the start, Madrid led at the right time because now they could control their own destiny in their own on their own home turf with players who were more than happy to take as long as possible. Like, I think Militao ended up spending more time on the floor than anybody else. And that's, you know what I mean? And that's your centre-back. So, you know, that's it's, it was a tough... If It would have been tough for City to come back in. I think they could have done it. But as I say, like 60,000 people make a difference to you as a player. I can tell you that as a fact. The one thing I was sort of wondering was whether it, the, stru- the, word, the structure word, is there something about City and the way that they play that means they are uniquely incapable of dealing with the game when it goes a bit mad? Because their game is so much about control and so yeah. much about the management of it, that maybe the, if you like, the emotional management of chaos is harder for them maybe than for, for other teams. Mm. And look, this is tongue in cheek, but I, I was genuinely wondering this last night. I was genuinely thinking the best thing that could have happened to City yesterday was that Real Madrid scored early. And everyone thinks that the yeah. comeback is on early on. Yeah, the stadium yeah, yeah, goes yeah. mad. City yeah. then kind of ride that and then play their game. A word on the referee, Daniel Osato. I wasn't watching the BT coverage, Barry. I saw social media getting very angry with him. We've talked about Casemiro, should have got that yellow early. Laporte could have got sent off, I think. I couldn't really... He sort of punched Modric and fell over. <laughs> it was quite a funny moment. Um, he probably didn't play enough injury time. Lots of people saying, uh, you know, should we have, uh, you know, stop the clock and all that, which I don't agree. I, there's a magic of injury time. You know, there's a magic of turning to your mate going... Where's he found that time from? Or, or, you know, getting furious about only two minutes. But do you think, did he have a bad game, do you think? No. Uh, I thought he made a couple of decisions that could have gone either way. The penalty was, you know, six of one, half a dozen of the other, I think. The BT commentary and, and coverage is incredibly biased towards English teams. So it doesn't surprise me that they were having a go at the referee. And as for, yeah, maybe he should have played more out of time. But City never really looked like scoring after Madrid went ahead, scored the penalty. And they had probably, including added time and actual time, they had 230 minutes to win this tie and failed to do so. So I think it's extremely... uh, It smacks of sour grapery and and extreme nitpickery to, to... point at the referee and say it's his fault okay um uh, look that'll do for part one in part two we'll carry on talking about this football match because we absolutely should welcome to part two of the guardian football weekly um sam asked the question if pep leaves city without a champions league is he a failure um philippe god I, I, these kind of questions drive me absolutely <laughs> mad. Yeah, he's a he's a complete failure. Uh, is he a bald fraud? He did the, he did, that, he did the tra- he's a bald fraud. Uh, he did the treble with Man City, but it means nothing. Uh, his titles mean nothing. Uh, 
No, that's ridiculous. No, it's not a failure. I mean, you could almost say it as a kind of a, an, adding to the tragic dimension of, of Pep Guardiola, the fact that he would be, the, the grail will always, you know, run away from him, vanish in the distance, just as he was about to touch the holy object, the, the whole, the thing that has been driving his whole, it, his whole life. It suddenly disappears in a puff of smoke. That's tragedy. That's beautiful. Of course not. This is totally ridiculous to say that. That doesn't mean that you cannot ask questions about the way that he goes about these things with, with Man City. And if I, I, I'd like to come back to what Nedum was saying, by the way, uh, about the fact, and what you were saying as well, Sid, about Riyad Mahrez. Um, when it comes, there's one point, I was following the game, I'm in Belgium at the moment with a friend of mine um, who used to be a professional footballer, and he said this thing which is I thought... Enzo Schifo? Is it, is it Enzo? No, 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 not quite as famous okay. as that. But he said... Hercule Poirot? They're so, they're so, obsessed, is they're so Eddie, obsessed. Is it Eddie Merckx, Philippe? Yes, that's the one, yes, absolutely. Okay, right, carry on, the, sorry. The, he said they're so obsessed by playing in triangles that they end up playing round in circles. And I thought, yeah, actually, you've got a point here. And another thing, you know, when, when you do play that way, your players, I think, do lose a bit of their capacity for improvisation. That's a personal feeling. And players who have got great capacities for improvisation, precisely like Riyad Mahrez, uh, players like Bernardo Silva, um, and, and you feel that there is at one point, yes, they perhaps not have, I don't know if it's psychological or technical or the preparation of the game, they don't seem to be able to embrace the chaotic nature of football at some times. And which is, I, I think, what Miguel was hinting at, by the way, when he quoted those, those stats, that it, it is something which happens. It, hap it can happen to anybody, but the fact it's happened so often at such crucial times shows that there are limits to perfection, so to speak, and that at times what has driven you to success, what has been the, the secret of your, of your success, can also be one of the reasons of your failure with loads of brackets, you know, loads of rabbit ears. I mean, losing in the semi-final of the European Cup at the Bernabeu against Real Madrid is not exactly a failure. It's a disappointment. It's whatever you want, but, you know. Well, I couldn't disagree more with Philippe here because I think if Pep leaves Manchester City without winning the Champions League, that is failure. This is a multi-billion pound project which has been tailored specifically for his every single need. The, the training complex, the stadium, he's been allowed to bring in whatever staff he wants. He has a basically unlimited spending power. They've, they haven't won the Champions League in six attempts, despite that being the owners, sports washing owners, who that is their holy grail, their white whale. So if he leaves without doing that, having all this money hosed in his direction, I think I don't think you can look at it and say it's anything other than a failure. Uh, yeah, that's 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 an interesting point. It's an interesting point that you make. But what happens if, say, Pep stays for another two years and then in year two he wins his first thing after two years and it's the Champions League? Would you then call that a success? If he literally wins nothing else in the next two years but then the Champions League in year two, is that success to you? Yes, because he has done what he has been specifically brought in to do. I mean, this is just such a wonderful PR job for Real Madrid, who are <laughs> one of the most objectionable <laughs> clubs on the planet. But in beating three other clubs, PSG, Chelsea, Man City, who would also, could, you know, 
realistically lay claim to being among the most objectionable clubs on the planet. <laughs> They've got everyone on side. We're all raving about these plucky underdogs <laughs> from Madrid. <laughs> who, who, let's face it, you know, they, they made so many... They were already unpopular, but made even more enemies last season with their dogged pursuit of the European Super League. Um, so I have to take my hat off to them. It's, it's just, what a season they're having. And actually, actually, Sid, you know, I, I forgot it was this season. Was it their first game when they lost at home to Sheriff? I mean, that <laughs> yeah, is for that. Their second game. Yeah. Second game to lose at the Bernabeu. Was it at the Bernabeu? That wasn't at the, the, the training. No, that was at home. It was at home. Was at home. Yeah. I mean, to be yeah. fair, that was a freak accident in that they'd taken God knows how many shots. Maybe this is the answer to beating Real Madrid. You, you've got to let Real Madrid dominate and then you've got to do to them what they do to other teams. Uh, but yes, they start the season getting 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 shot down by Sheriff. It's just, it's, it's, it's just insane. This, I mean, look, I know we all love to, to kind of go on about, is this the best ever? And, and at times it's incredibly tiresome. But I'm struggling to think of a European Cup campaign, anything like it. And, and, and you know, Barry's there mentioning the sort of the, the, the roll call of objectionable clubs that they've defeated. But one other way of looking at it is the roll call of incredibly good teams. I mean, it's very difficult to imagine a run to the final more, more complicated than this one. To so have played PSG, Chelsea and Man City. And yes, it's true. In all three of them, you think... They shouldn't have got through. And I was thinking this yesterday. I, I, I can't even begin to conceptualise what happened in the extra times in these games. So for the sake of this argument, which is very handy, I'm going to completely ignore extra time, right? Okay. Yeah. But basically, we're looking at 12 halves of football across these three games. Right? Against Chelsea, against Man City, and against... Uh, who was the other team they played? PSG. PSG, yeah. Right. 12 halves of football. Like think I'm probably not, not exaggerating to say that of those 12 periods of football, Real Madrid were the better team in one of them. And that was the first half at Stamford Bridge. One in 12 and somehow they're through. Isn't that what makes football, and we're probably biased, the best sport? Of course because it is. Because it, it isn't, it doesn't meet, doesn't matter if you aren't the better, you can win in adversity, you can win without having the ball, you can win if you're not the better team. And so it, it, it's, it opens, it's much more likely to happen had this been, I don't know, rugby or an American football or whatever, where it's just, you know, the better team just tend to win. It just, it, it, You've got lots and that... lots and lots of fans of other sports now, furious, Max. <laughs> yeah. Did you not see the time that, I don't know, the Pittsburgh yeah, Steelers yeah. or know. whatever? But it is, that is definitely part of it. I think the other thing, though, the other sort of counter-argument to that, apart from the fact that I'm sure there are other sports when teams win that shouldn't, is that, and again, I sort of want to bring it back to this because I feel there is a risk of us just saying... Well, look at Real Madrid, jammy bastards. Uh, and, and this is also a product of having some incredibly good players, choosing moments, but not, maybe not choosing moments, but being able to take advantage of moments when they come, of, of having what we talked about, that capacity to deal with chaos that others haven't, of having that capacity to stay on their feet, even though it feels like they shouldn't be. And of course, some of this is luck. Of course it is. Of course, some of it is chance. But there's also, you know, that pass that Modric gives, for example, against Chelsea, that's brilliance. Uh, the performance of Camavinga yesterday, and by the way, I think Camavinga is a really interesting case. In all three games, Camavinga is the man they turn to. And this is a guy that doesn't start most weeks. In fact, barely ever starts. Comes on, and in all three games, he was vital. And at the risk of being nasty about Tony Cruz, because I don't think it's about Tony Cruz, really. In all three games, Cruz is the man that goes off to try and shift things back Real Madrid's way. David says, a lot of chat about fate and destiny. As a philosopher, does Philippe believe in fate or destiny? No, 
Next question. Do you believe we have free yes. will? Yes. Next do. question. Okay, great. I like this. What a short <laughs> dissertation it must have been. Lawrence says, uh, was Manchester City's defeat to Real Madrid last night after being two uh, goals to the good in injury time, the footballing gods levelling up for Manchester City's victory over Gillingham in the playoffs all those years ago. <laughs> and yes, I am a Gillingham fan. Uh, it's a great question. Andy says, um, is Jesus Vallejo an Italian exchange student who got lost and has never found his way home? <laughs> like, who is this extraordinary? You know, when you know it cuts to the Real Madrid bench. I don't watch every minute of La Liga, but I know who the Real Madrid players are. And you look at a man going, I don't know who that is. <laughs> and then he comes on and just heads it as far as he can. I'm like, oh, this is like... This is like League Two. I love this. <laughs> Max, let me let me just look because you mentioned Jesus Vallejo. I'm just looking at my notes from the weekend's game because Jesus Vallejo started at the weekend against Espanyol, the last game of the season, obviously, for Real Madrid to win the league. Not the last game of the season, but the game that would win them the league because they were resting players ready for this, right? So I've actually got it written here. Jesus Vallejo started at the weekend. She said, oh, there you go. So he's part of the squad. Until then, he'd played, he had played 14 minutes this season Seven in the league, three in the Champions League, and four in the Copa del Rey. That was his entire season. And so when you say this is a guy I didn't recognise, it's understandable you didn't recognise him. I must admit, I, I did once see him at the zoo in Madrid. So, so there you go. There's a claim for you. Oh, right. At what enclosure? Hey, I'll set him up, Max. You put him away. That was a genuine question. I thought you had seen him at the zoo. Oh, I sorry, I thought you were suggesting he was in one of the enclosures. Oh, no, I thought that no, was your no, hilarious no. joke. I thought that's what you... No, no, no. I wasn't... I wasn't... No, I was genuinely interested. Were you at the meerkats or were you looking at the lions? I think we were, I think we were walking past the butterfly house at that point. Oh, that's a lovely part of a zoo. Underrated part of a zoo. Uh, Andy, another Andy says, how enjoyable is it to see a club, no matter how good they are, resort to long diagonals during times of desperation? Yeah, that is a great moment in football as well. And Ian says, when Darren Fletcher said he couldn't remember a Champions League comeback like that at 2-1, how many emails do you reckon Clive Tilsley would have sent him by the, t- <laughs> by the time you got the pods? Talking about uh, remontadas, I mean, Sid, I hope you'll confirm this because I think it would be rather lovely. Um, it, I, I read that Carlo Ancelotti, before the game, had prepared this video in which he put together clips of all the remontadas from Real Madrid throughout the season showed that, and then um, concluded there's one missing on that list, something like that, which I think is... What a What a It's beautiful, isn't it? I mean, it's... Uh, I mean, uh, that would suggest that, that, lads, let's be in a position where we're losing with 30 seconds to go was actually a plan. No, but it, <laughs> what it might suggest as well, I'm thinking in terms of, of the substitutions, which, by the way, our substitutions is used a number of times before, uh, is the fact that the game plan, when it came to, you know, nil-nil, I thought actually Ancelotti would be really happy about that at, at halftime, really happy about that. And then you bring in, uh, yes, uh, impact players such as Kevin Minga later in the game when perhaps people are tiring a bit around them, including uh, among the opposition. And I wouldn't say, oh, it was a grand master plan that Master Carletto, you know, devised from A to Z all throughout the season and for this game. But again... It's happened often enough for you to think, well, actually, no, there is something which is also due to the personality and the extraordinary talent of, the, of this unique manager. And what he did, one of the things that Carlo, Carlo did say pre-game, and, and obviously this is borne out, look, I know up to a point this is maybe a platitude to satisfy players who aren't starting and want to start. 
But he said before this game, and I think it's a line that he's used before over the course of the season, he said, look, it, it, it may not matter who starts this game. What matters might be who finishes it. And that, you know, that there is a role to play. And if that role is 90 minutes or if that role is 70 minutes or if that role is three minutes, that role is still important. And I suppose that's part of it. So again, it's not, maybe not so much a plan as a, as a prepare player. So that if you come on late, it's not because I've left you out because you're not good enough. It's because fate or destiny or the game or, or, or good luck or whatever it may be has a different role in my view. And I, I sort of feel like I should throw this in. I know this, you know, this doesn't mean anything, but um, on Cadenasair radio last night, in the first couple of minutes, the, the presenter was saying, you know what, this is a game that Rodrigo wins. And they all sort of laughed at him. And then he comes on and does that. <laughs> oh, I'll play that clip over and over again. Nedim, on that subject of videos, you know, managers playing motivational videos, you must have had a, f- you must have had a few, like, great, what, get the team around, show them this video, or even just managers putting up signs, you know, around the yeah. club. Whenever I've been to football clubs and it's just sort of, you wander into a room and it says, you are born to win. And I just <laughs> get into a room saying that, I think, this is completely ridiculous. Yeah, I think there's, you need to buy into it. There's sports psychology, but you really need to buy into it because if you don't, you're looking around with such a cynical eye, like, oh, you say born champions as we walk in and we've lost again. So oh, that's, <laughs> that's a good sign. But like, for some of those videos, especially those comeback ones from Real Madrid, like you can't help but feel something about it because I'm thinking, I'm thinking about it. And if I was a player, I'd be remembering that moment coming back because those late wins, they feel incredible. Obviously, you just want to win a game comfortably, but a late win as a fan, as a player, as everything, you know, it means so much to you. You remember those a lot more than, say, some of the other ones. So when you get a chance to see some of those coming back, it's like the motivation, like, bang. And I snap out. It's like, right, let's go. We want to win this today. This is the feeling. The Champions League finals at the end of it. So you can see some great videos. But then in the same breath, like, I've had some um, sports scientist types come into the to the team and say, now you need to all close eyes and hold your hands and stuff. And, you know, just picture this good thing happening and so on and so forth. And I'm like, ah. <laughs> okay, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll do this and, and hopefully it works. But um, yeah, I'm not going to bet my life on it. Let's just say that. We haven't talked about Karen Benzema yet on this run, really. And, and, you know, the calmness to take the penalty. I hope, like me, Barry, I was desperate for him to penenka that. It would have been absolutely <laughs> sensational. <laughs> yeah, he didn't. I mean, what a season he's having. 43 goals and 43 appearances. 13 in the Champions League, 10 of which have come in the knocker rounds. And you, you kind of just knew he was going to score at some point last night. Admittedly, I, I wasn't hugely confident at, at, in the 90th minute, but I, I'd love to know what was going through his head as he stood over that penalty. Is he just utterly confident he's going to score? Is he nervous you know did it cross his mind to do a penenka again just for the laugh um, and also what's going through edison's mind because i i kind of believe i can joe hart's had a good season this season with celtic and he's very popular up up in scotland among celtic fans but his career i think went off a cliff after Pirlo penenka him and you know he was kind of trying to put Pirlo off half-heartedly and it didn't work and then Pirlo just made him look a fool and things were never quite the same for Joe after that. I think if if Benzema had penenka Ederson again <laughs> yesterday, 
he might have ended up, you know, playing for Motherwell <laughs> in five years. <laughs> in what position could have been playing centre mid for Motherwell, couldn't he? I mean, Furious Toast says, with Steve McManaman's boast that he's seen 100 million games of football and never a single one like that, how many games has Barry seen and he ever has he ever seen a game like that? Um, I, I did the maths here. Um, that's 9 billion minutes. It's 150 million hours. It's 6 million 250,000 days. It would take Steve McManaman 17,123 years to watch a hundred million football matches. So when the first man is cryogenically frozen, perhaps it will be Steve McManaman. I then tried to work out how many football matches there have ever been to see if it's possible, you know, could you could you have possibly watched, but that was a much harder, mm. it's impossible, you know, what level, what tier do I go down to? Like how many matches, are there's matches happening all the time everywhere, <laughs> right? But I mean, have there been a hundred million? It's such a, it's such a lot of football Counting matches. grains of um, sand on the beach, Max. It really is, isn't it? <laughs> you know, I like to think I'm busy. Clearly, I'm not busy enough. Clearly you're not, yeah. What's really interesting now for City as well, Nedim, is psychologically, they've really, it's, I don't know how hard it will be for them. You know, they've got to win all their games. They win the Premier League. That's still a successful season. And for Liverpool, when you think about Liverpool and Real Madrid, Real Madrid could rest all their players if they want. They've got nothing else to do. All they've got is this one game. Liverpool have got to win every single game. I guess they'll be in a rhythm, but but you kind of think that gives Real Madrid a tiny bit of an advantage? It's tough to say, considering it's at the end of the month. You really don't know. Like you can be resting players, but I think that like I need to I need to make this point because I was making this a year ago. When I was tracking City last year, they played in 61 of the possible 62 games that were all available. Liverpool are going to play in 62 of 62. And the squad that they have and the rotation that they've done throughout this season now, it makes sense because now they can change players and they don't really drop off that much. They're still capable of winning. Like you look at the team they sent up against Newcastle and some people thinking, oh, this will be where they potentially slip up. And they'll make changes, but they'll still win the game and win it how they usually do. So I think the fact that Real Madrid have won the league in some ways it doesn't necessarily make them favourites because there could be a hint of complacency over the final few weeks of the season in preparation for like the be-all and end-all game come the end of it. Whereas for Liverpool, they'll be in that mindset where they are trying to win games, win games, win games. They could, by the time the final comes, they could be Premier League winners, they could be FA Cup winners and they've got one more thing left to do. And how about the motivation for that to be able to make history? So Real Madrid don't, don't quite have it, don't quite have that, but... You know, it's, it, this is this is this is great if you if you're somebody who wants to sort of see the potential scenarios because like Liverpool could win four, or Liverpool might win not win one in the League Cup and all this. There's so much in there, but for all those players in that Liverpool camp, they'll be so motivated. And Madrid can do whatever they want to do, but Liverpool for me will still enter as favourites because of their style of play and alike. And you know, if if uh, if Benzema does a Penenka to win it, you know, you got to hold your hands up and say fair enough, but here's what it is. Eh? Uh, what are the consequences you think it's going to have on Manchester City because Guardiola said it's going to take the, the players 24 hours to get over that. I mean, my mm. my feeling would be it would take a lot more than 24 hours to get over that. I mean, to get that out of your brain. No matter how many times people say, "Well, you've got to concentrate on the next game, take it game per game." It must play in your mind again and again yeah. and again. And you're wondering, well, the next game that City... Actually, to be honest, I can't remember whom they're playing against this weekend. Newcastle at home. Well, yeah. okay. Yeah. That's yeah. not going to be an easy one, is it? No. No, no. So this is this is my take on it. So the players will be destroyed at this point. And I think if anyone's like me, the way that football tended to work was that you play a game and then you're sort of consumed by it 
until the next time you play another game, because then that's the thing that's in your memory more than the others. And they'll look back at this time and feel the the pain, the stress, because all the senior players touched the field as well and had a chance to affect it in a positive manner, but they didn't. And the frustration is going to be there. But for them now, like the frustration of going out in the Champions League semi-final, in my opinion, won't be as great as them conceding the title to Liverpool with four games to go. And for these guys, if we're going to say that they are driven, they are motivated and they are winners, then that's how they'll approach these next four games. They'll understand that the games are going to be tough, but like that's their sole objective now. And I don't think like they'd rather be in Liverpool's camp where they've got an FA Cup final league situation in the Champions League, but they're not. So for them, it's literally realign yourself to this goal. And then you can feel your sorrow about the Champions League and all that, and all that stuff afterwards, but feels for the better day. Do you, do you ever like wake up in a cold sweat thinking about a bad defeat or a mistake? Occasionally, I think occasionally at like my shit level of football, I still think about <laughs> missing an open goal I missed 20 years ago. Oh, it's funny you say that because, um, well, as a player and even now as like an amateur player. So the other day I played in a, a five-a-side for like basically a, in a, with a bunch of middle-aged men who never really played football when they were younger. But we played against a bunch of 18 to 24-year-olds who were quite feeling themselves. And I was playing, you know, I did what I did or whatever. I don't want to brag, two goals and assist, but we lost 5-3. I thought, I is what it is. Disappointing, went off. But then one of them tweeted me saying the scoreline need to try harder next time. And I was like, <laughs> ah, no way, no way. And, and to be fair, to go back to me then as a player, you can't escape it because say you finish the game, you, you everything, there's nothing else to talk about. Literally, there's, it's not the time or the tone to talk about the game that's to come because everybody's still feeling it physically and emotionally from the game that's just been, you're like, ah! And, and when you're a professional footballer, you can't just turn and go, how's work? <laughs> yeah, exactly. That, that is yeah. work. Yeah, it's like, because <laughs> you think you remember every single, like, as a player, you analyse everything. You remember things you did well, things you did badly. You feel those moments where somebody's missed a chance or you've made a mistake that's cost a goal. Like, Ruben Diaz will be thinking about the goals he could have prevented. Grealish thinking about the chance he could have scored. I think if you can just switch off from that and say it doesn't matter, then you don't end up in these sorts of positions because it should matter because that's your driving force for the next thing. That period of disappointment is one whereby you remember it and use its motivation for the next. And for them, if they don't enter the game on Sunday against Newcastle at home, motivated with that home crowd there who will offer them support, then they're just in the wrong game in the wrong place, to be honest with you. Nedham, is two goals and an assist when a man of your... Starters is playing in a team full of wheezing middle-aged men. Not hey, I didn't, hey. <laughs> listen, my friend. Listen, my friend. I said I was playing with, not against middle-aged men. That's the difference. I was playing against people who are potentially young enough to be my child, to be my children. And yes, if you were to see the team, you'd understand why it's a huge achievement. Because I can both, I cannot both be at the back and up front at the same time, my what? friend. When you find a way, that's the key thing. That's the key thing. But that's. Sweet. It was brilliant because they were just poking a bit of fun and they were really nice during but I thought, you cheeky sods. So I was thinking, tell you what, come play against my team because I've, I've got a side team and uh, we've, we've got a few wins to our, uh, with our back, to be fair. Um, Sid, before you go, uh, anything else you want to add on that ridiculous game or do you want to go back to bed? I, I, I don't know if there is anything to add. I mean, I suppose just the, it just it's lovely in a way, isn't it, that it can't be explained. Like if anyone came here to this podcast today to, to try and hear... It explained how this happened. Sod off, because it just—it just can't be. I think most listeners know that's that's not really. Yeah, they're not coming here anyway. They're not coming here for that. They're not coming here for analysis. I don't really know what they're coming here for, but we appreciate them all anyway. Uh, cheers, Sid. You can go away now.
right, that'll do for part two. Uh, we'll do uh, everything else very in a very short amount of time in part three. Welcome to part three of the Guardian Football Weekly. Uh, come to our live tour, especially if, I don't know, you're, there's a group of 400 of you and you live in and around Birmingham. Um, <laughs> go to, my, to myticket.co.uk. Uh, 13th of June in Leeds, 15th in Birmingham, 19th in Manchester, 4th of July in Dublin. The 5th is sold out over there. 8th and 9th of July at the Hackney Empire in London and at SWG3 in Glasgow on the 13th of July. Uh, Europa League and Europa Conference tonight. Uh, we'll do a special pod for them tomorrow so we can talk about that then. Der High says, um, Infantino and migrant worker quotes, no particular question. I just want to hear Philippe drop some truth and the lawyers groan at the paperwork. Um, this is what Gianni Infantino said. Uh, when you give work to somebody, even in hard conditions, you give him dignity and pride. It's not charity, said Infantino when asked about workers suffering in Qatar while building World Cup stadiums. Philippe. I think people should actually listen to the whole clip. It's available. I think Deutsche Welle in particular has uh, put the whole clip with the image because I think the delivery uh, is as important as anything uh, because you could say, or maybe we should uh, contextualize this, this quote by Mr. Infantino. And as you can hear in my voice, I'm not going to go into another rant because I, I think I've gone past that uh, stage of the rant mm -hmm. because it's so, so shocking. I think when you reach this level of brass nakedness and tin-earedness, I don't know what to say anymore because he talks about there being only three deaths on the stadiums in Qatar. And then he has this kind of fake empathy in his voice saying, well, three is three too many, of course. And of course, we all know that it's not three, it's hundreds, it's thousands, because the World Cup is, is a massive construction site which has taken over the whole of Doha and of Qatar, and that the projects on which thousands of those workers have suffered inexplicable death are linked in one way or another to the staging of the World Cup, that we know that. But I think it, it shows how remote, uh, how far from us now the governing body of football has become. And I don't feel anymore, I mean, my frustration, anger, whatever you call it, is now very cold and, and actually is turning a little bit to despair almost because how are we going to get rid of that? That was my question. What can, what can football fans do? You feel totally helpless. You, f you feel helpless because there is no way FIFA is going to reform itself from the inside. FIFA is run like an autocracy. FIFA has always been very good at dealing with autocrats. They, FIFA loves autocrats. Remember Jérôme Varg saying it's much easier to hold the World Cup in a dictatorship. It's, it's always been that, that. Sepp Blatter was one very good for that, for rubbing shoulders with the great and powerful, especially if the great and powerful were also people who were dictators and, and, and autocrats. And FIFA is run like an autocracy with Gianni Infantino, um, by which I mean he's a, he's, he, he's a control freak who wants to overlook, oversee, every single detail of, of the uh, governing body's functioning. But when you hear that, and it denotes such a complete lack of empathy, complete lack of understanding as well of, uh, of what is going on, uh, and also a complete lack of perception of... Yeah, I don't think he understands how people are looking at him and are looking at his organization any longer. He's so close into his own world, FIFA world, because he's an autocrat, because he knows it, there is no danger to him apart from the election next year. And what is he going to do? He, he's going to do the same as he's always done, 
which is to promise more money uh, to the 211 member associations. He stands a very good chance of being re-elected and he knows that the reform won't come from within. And unfortunately, um, uh, it's you at one point, you can see that the personal failures or the character failures uh, are compounding systemic failures of the organization to the point that they're, they're not discernible one from the, from the other. Any kind of reform, if we don't want to hear this kind of uh, disgraceful comments really anymore, and if we want to have an organization that actually takes the human rights situation seriously uh, when it awards events to uh, autocracies and dictatorships, I'm afraid it's got to be broken down. And that's not going to happen from the inside, Max. It's going to happen through pressure through all the other stakeholders in, in football. And my only hope is that people are going to start looking at that and thinking, this, is, this cannot go on. This cannot go on. And, um, you know, so it, I can't rant against it anymore. You know, it's, it's ranting. It's quite good for the soul, I suppose. You let some steam off. But here this is so shocking. Philippe, we will, of course, talk about it more in the lead up to the World Cup. We're working out exactly how we want to cover it. You will be like central to all of that, of, of that, there is no doubt. Um, Nedum, you've written a book uh, called Kicking Back, Your Life Story, The Life and Times um, yeah. of an Amateur Five-A-Side Footballer Who Can't Quite Do Enough. Uh, no, 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 <laughs> no, 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 no. That's, 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 the, that's the second book. That's right, right. Okay, book. that's the, that's yeah, no, the no, sequel. No, no. Oh, it's like a Richard yeah, Osman yeah. type journey now. You're going to be yeah, translated this... to a million languages. We, we want to talk yeah. about it like properly in detail yeah. Basically, when I've read it, I don't know if, you, if you've read it yet, Barry, but I haven't read it yet because you only sent me the PDF yesterday and I've been watching football. But just just give us a little, you know, just tell us about why you wanted to do it and, and when it's out. Well, it, 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 as people who've come across me know, I'm a very, very private person. So I've kept a lot of this completely private. Like literally nobody knows anything about me or the situations or things that I've seen. But in retirement, I was speaking with uh, Hugh Ferris, who was the ghostwriter for the book. He was very, very good with that. And I've known him for 20, 25 years. And he got me talking about my life, got me talking about my career and the places I've ended up. And he starts to realize they're actually quite consequential. You know, whether it was a case of coming through a city f when they were first in like Division Two to say the takeover happening, things like this. And then, you know, when you want to go somewhere that's like really stable, no real concerns after you leave, you know, you obviously go to QPR in 2012. <laughs> so that's that stuff, you know, it kind of fall, it falls into it. And then being in the USA in 2020 again was, was really, really interesting. I think for myself, as most people will probably gather from the way that I speak and the like, you know, I have my takes on football and I was very much a part of it. But then on the other side, I was a little bit on the outside as well because I, I felt a bit different within it. So there's tons of stories in there about, say, my time, my life, places I've been, some real interesting characters in there, which you can probably sort of guess at. And um, yeah, it's, it's good. I, I thought I'd feel really weird about it. And in some ways I do, but then in some ways I'm proud that there is something out there that is about me and that's my story. So yeah, it's uh, as I say, it's called Kicking Back. It's out May 17th and I'm sure we'll talk more about it. Uh, yeah, we will. Absolutely. Uh, in the summer when there's less football and we need to fill <laughs> some time, we'll be absolutely... <laughs> no, 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 we'll do it. We, we will do it justice. No, no. Mark says, imagine how much you could get for Ethan Pinnock's match-worn shirt in 36 years' time. Uh, the Diego Maradona <laughs> shirt that he wore when he scored the hand of God goal and the other goal. 
um, for Argentina against England at the 86 World Cup has sold for £7.1 million, the highest price ever paid for a piece of sports memorabilia. It was a great tweet from Robbie Knox, who used to work on Soccer AM uh, before the glory years, uh, who said, Steve Hodge brought this shirt to Soccer AM once in a carrier bag. Um, <laughs> it's amazing, Barry, isn't it? £7.1 million. It's astonishing. Um, I, I read an article today, actually, uh, Danny Kelly's wife, who who does book reviews for the Guardian, she she mentioned that he worked on a show once, where they asked Hodge to bring the shirt along, and he rocked up, had it in a Tesco carrier bag. Clearly, didn't realise how much it was worth, and Danny Kelly was just like <laughs> appalled as a you really got to get that insured. Um, there's there's been a bit of controversy around this garment. I think Maradona's daughter has suggested it's. Not the shirt he finished the game in. It's the shirt he wore in the first half. My understanding, and I'm not saying I know better than Diego Maradona's daughter, is that those shirts were hastily bought in a sports shop in Mexico City and they probably only had one each uh, because they had to iron numbers on, sew badges on before the game. And, yeah, the Argentinian FA apparently sent a delegation to negotiate with Hodge and beg him not to sell it privately at auction because they wanted to keep it so but what a windfall for steve hodge oh, and God. you know imagine if peter shilton had got the shirt he'd have burnt it <laughs> years ago i'm wondering how people would feel if say the shirt was being carried in maybe like a waitrose bag or an MS bag. do you think it would be less controversial or is it, is it a tesco issue a bag for you know like a bag for life like a hessian yeah bag for life yeah it's probably about right yeah. it's amazing that steve hodge do you think that other england play you know like who was who else was sort of near? I know Terry Butcher apparently just was furious with Hodge for getting the shirt. Apparently, but you know Shilton obviously. Um, I mean, the less we talk about him, the better, I guess. But you know, he still won't you know won't forgive him and wouldn't meet him when when Maradona was alive. But you know, doesn't Terry Fennick think that could have been me? And now Steve Hodge <laughs> gets seven point one million pounds. Terry Fennick would go, come on, mate. If only after the game I'd said, let's go halves. I've got Burashagas. Let's just go up. Come on, mate. I mean, whoever bought it, I saw some racehorse trainer tweeting yesterday, uh, just a message for any, whoever bought Maradona's shirt, we have a few good <laughs> yearlings for sale. <laughs> yeah, absolutely right. You know, what else could you get for 7 million? Oh, it's mad. Anyway, um, that's a, a lovely way to end the pod, isn't it? Uh, uh, cheers for your time, Barry. Thank you. That was great. Uh, thanks, Philippe. Thank you very much, Max. Uh, cheers, Nadam. Thank you, sir. Uh, we'll be back uh, tomorrow, our Europa League special. It's got something to live. West Ham have got work to do, haven't they, to live up to Real Madrid. But we'll see if they do. Uh, Football Weekly was produced by Joel Grove. Our executive producer is Max Sanderson. Back tomorrow. This is The Guardian. <laughs> 